SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. Sometimes when she talks to me like that, I feel I'd like to go up there and curse her and, and, and leave her forever. Or at least a fire. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergy. With me is Thrasher. You know what I do with unhappiness? I buy it off. And Alex. Hi, I'm Anthony Perkins. You might remember me from On the Beach and Fear Strikes Out, but today I am here to murder you while you shower. We are talking about the fantastic 1998 film. Oh, no, wait, the 1960 film, Psycho, <laughs> directed by Alfred Hitchcock, uh, based on the book by Robert Block, with a screenplay by Joseph Stefano. Um, I could be putting the wrong emphasis on the syllable there, but um, anyhow. Yeah, I mean, this was, uh, you know, spawned a series of films. We'll go into the, the sequels. We'll go into the TV pilot. I don't think we'll do the, the remake just for time's sake, but we could do it later on as a kind of... Um, fill in the gap episode well that's for our, our spin-off show the remake cast oh god okay but, but psycho 1960 i mean i cannot believe this film is 60 61 years old that's that's flooring to me it's incredible and um this was this uh, first of all this is just like a huge film for me this is like one of the first movies i think i was like obsessed with and like even at a young age like alfred hitchcock was like one of the first directors like I was aware of growing up because uh, like there was a lot of reruns of Alfred Hitchcock presents and everything mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. sort of about the infamous psycho, you know, and, you know, I've probably seen this movie a million times. And even just in preparation for this episode, this watching it this morning, I was like, this movie still freaking creeps you out. It still really gets under your skin because Alfred Hitchcock's that goddamn good of a director. This is one of those, those movies that had such an effect on pop culture it, it's one of those movies where the first time I saw it, I couldn't be sure whether that was the first time I saw it, I've seen it, because I've always been surrounded by clips to this movie, references references to this movie, oh, yeah. areas of this movie. Like you feel like you've seen it from beginning to end, even before you've ever sat down to watch the whole thing. Yeah, yeah it's I, like the Citizen Kane of horror films. Like, sure, I, I do remember specifically. I was on a family vacation. I was maybe in third grade or something. It was when MGM Studios first opened at uh, the um, Disney World. And it was some some one of those things. You go in the queue, you go in a theater on a big, might have been a curved screen, and you see something about special effects. And, and they talk about the, the um, shower scene from Psycho. And, and, of course, it's been, you know, parodied so much uh i i rented it i think when the remake came out i rented the original just because i was curious and then didn't get around to seeing the remake in theaters i think it might have been 16 or something like slightly too young to see it by myself in a theater and it, it just the black and white photography it just looks real sharp um it was kind of cranked out as a real like cheapy thing i don't think anyone had really high hopes for it and it was yeah uh, 
Oh, so Zion hugely, hugely successful. Well, as yeah. I understand it, like Hitchcock was in the position to make whatever the hell he wanted. So, like, one of his assistants had brought him Robert uh, Block's novel, Psycho, and mm. he's like, oh, well, this is going to be it. And the studio's like, I know we said you could make anything. We're not going to make this. So, to, to uh, like, a lot of this was self-financed. Uh, it had oh, really yeah. weird distribution. As I, as I understand it, like... The the studio was so sure this wasn't going to make money that they let him have the like exclusive rights to the film after oh, like, it was done. So he like, got all the money. <laughs> and what happened too was that um, like Hitchcock kind of was like in, in a creative slump because if you see um, North by Northwest, it's a great terrific film that came out prior to this. But it's for it, for in Hitchcock terms, it's kind of old hat. It's like stuff we've all seen before. You know, the wrongfully accused man, people on the run, national monuments mm-hmm. uses uh, scenes, backdrops and what settings and what have you. So he was kind of like he felt like he wasn't being taken seriously. He was very present on television. Um, and he also saw, you know, these like, you know, B films coming out. You know, you had Roger Corman coming up. You had William Castle coming up. And he's kind of like, okay, these guys are doing these, like, you know, little fright movies. He's like, you know what? I'm going to do a black and white scary movie, and it's going to fucking blow these other ones out of the water, basically. And that's exactly what he did. And it was kind of like, uh, it was really, it was reinvigorating for him and I think audiences as well. And also it kind of, it was weird. It was almost like, it was almost like analogous to how one Kubrick made The Shining. As like, yeah. but however, like I think Hitchcock's approach to horror and and thrillers, especially, is much more from a point of respect than Kubrick had respect for the horror film. Um, and what you get is is Psycho. <laughs> it's so goddamn good, and that's well, why it's and... so bare bones and and stripped back. And like you said, it's like a there was no faith in it. No one thought this film was really going to do anything. It's also like. It's also like five different movies, each that have a five-act structure, and he just takes the first act from one, the second act from another. There's so mm-hmm. many delightful baits and switches in this film. Oh, baits yeah. and switches, I see what you did there, yeah. So <laughs> with with um, Psycho, I mean, he used a lot of the crew that he had used on his uh, popular TV show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. That it was black and white in 1960 made it a bit of a lark. I mean, I think yeah. maybe part of that was perhaps to get around, I mean, to have a lower budget for it, for one, but also maybe to get around the censors for the uh, infamous shower scene. I mean, th- this film is so popular, there's a documentary just about the impact of the shower scene. Yeah, it's like in, 7852, I think, right? Yeah, uh, I've seen it. It's by the same director. I don't have the guy's name, but it's the same director who did The People versus George Lucas, which is oh, cool. isn't a great one, but... Um, but the the psycho one's much better, and you just sort of the the bananas thing I was reading last night about the '98 remake is they originally cut their shower scene the same, and and the premise between the the remake is it was going to be shot for shot the same thing. However, when they were doing the editing, they realized for whatever reason that just didn't quite work, and so they had Gus Van Sant throw a bunch of like weird insert shots and redo some of the editing and some of the sequences. It's it's very so strange. Yeah, very, very, almost like, I mean, I could see you doing that, like, as a film student project, or, like, on YouTube, they have the things with yeah. Star Wars, where you have, I don't know, like, 300 people, each one takes, like, 30 seconds, and right, the math doesn't yeah. work on that, right? But, you know, it's like a, um, it's like a big each one does a scene. Movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very, I mean, it's, it's far better than that, is the um, YouTube kind of collaboration remake of RoboCop, where, like, it has a 30-minute sequence of people getting shot in the dick. <laughs> uh, it's kind of more to the anyhow that's more of Verhoeven but yeah Psycho it also I mean 
it it this movie has some have seen a woman like uh in in her bra and and slip was, was something pretty spicy for the time even seeing a bathroom uh this was one if not the first one of the first movies where you got to see a bathroom with a toilet and things i mean yeah. just, such things were considered yeah not apropos in movies and it flushes i do believe this is yes. the oldest film i've ever seen a working facilities in yeah, right. I, I mean, it is in sitcoms, mistake. you might have jokes with toilets, but it would be off screen. You'd hear the sound effect in this. I mean, well, much that would come much later. OK, right. But but with toilets and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's central to the plot, too. And I, I did reread some of the I, I have read the book. It's been a while, but I reread some of it. Uh, there was no novel by Robert Block. And like, though, the basic events are the same, like it's a lot more of the mother talking to Norman uh, from his point of view, a lot of um, it, in the shower scene in the book, uh, Norman Bates cuts off her head and the head comes rolling around. Uh, yeah, I heard you know, it's more violent. Pretty um, violent and much makes Norman much less sympathetic. And it's funny because it's like, could you imagine being around like, you know, Century City studio lot and just hearing like, who's someone's making an Ed Gein movie? Who's going to make it? Alfred Hitchcock. You know what I mean? This would be like Steven Spielberg doing the Richard Ramirez story or something like that. You know what I mean? Like big budget prestige director, you know, making a movie about a guy who, you know, dug up his mother and made, you know, belts out of nipples and freaking skin lamps and shit. Sure. And, um, and mind you, you know, in 1960, you did not have a good, although you had cop TV shows, uh, you did not have a zillion shows about serial killers and, yeah, documentary things that was not helter skelter, right? You didn't have all that stuff. There wasn't even a name for it. You call them pattern killers back then. You know, they, they oh, really? didn't even really exist. I think, yep. and um, and it's yeah, like it how do you really make... been pathologized yet? Yeah, and like how do you make someone like that sympathetic? Well, you you well you rewrite it, and also you cast adorable little Anthony Perkins in the role, and then you kind of have a whole new canvas. Oh, and speaking of which, I'll read this brief. Uh excerpt I sent you guys of, of a sentence describing what Norman Bates looks like in the novel, right? Uh, the light shone down on his plump face, reflected from his rimless glasses, bathed the pinkness of his scalp beneath the thinning, sandy hair as he bent his head to resume reading. I mean, th this guy yeah. in, in the book, cool. he he's not uh, in shape or attractive like Anthony Horkins. He's, he's almost described as almost like a aside from the hair color, like Nedry from uh, Jurassic Park. Right, yeah, it sounds like uh, like like your stereotypical what you'd think like a serial killer would be now. You know what I mean? Like the mm -hmm. like the rotund, gross guy, you know, kind of pervy looking. Ugh. I'm thinking but, almost uh, of like the the Warcraft player they have in that South Park, make love not Warcraft. Yeah, episode. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of wheezy lives in the mom's basement type. You know, mm -hmm. um, well, I think I think that's what helps with Anthony Perkins' performance is he looks sure. like just a nice, clean cut young man, and then he keeps he keeps just saying these little creepy things and, and getting these little creepy ticks and then goes right back to being a clean cut young man. It's not yeah. just ticks. It's like the lawn pauses the way he stares at her. And he's like, Oh, you have your sandwiches and milk. I'll just watch. Like, I don't want someone watching me eat really. That's kind well, of embarrassing. Well it's, a, well, it's a wonderful, like again, another bait and switch because like the whole time, like, Oh, he, this is a Hitchcock movie. He's brought out a meal to share and then decides he's not going to eat. Oh, obviously someone's getting poisoned or drugged. Yeah, right. And it's so funny because also it's like, I mean, think about this nowadays. If anyone ever said like, "Oh, let me make you, let me make you dinner of sandwiches," it's just me and my mother. Huh? You'd be like, you know, get get out of your freak show. Like, you know, don't come anywhere near me. Um, you know, and then you know, obviously back then things were a little more different. And um, 
and just like the way it's like, okay, normally you would maybe your, your radar would go off and say, this is a little creepy, but he's got this like very boyish innocence to him, you know, where like, he's just like this lonely little kid, you know, he really does have this yes. like very boyish, unthreatening, um, unimposing presence. And then, like you said, there's these little ticks and these little moments of like, okay, like with hindsight now, we know what goes on, obviously now. But seeing this for the first time, it must have been such a, it must have really thrown audiences. Right. And um, I mean, also that's such a, this came out in 1960, I mean, it was filmed in the late 50s. This is 1950s meal, sandwiches and milk. Like if you're going to a friend's house and having something to eat, it's probably, thank you, kitty cats. You know, it's probably pizza or I, I don't know, like maybe chicken fingers or, a yeah. sandwich, or maybe subway if you're doing a sandwich but let's have sandwiches sliced and bread milk. was still a novelty at the time the, yeah and also <laughs> deli deli meats too that was like the bachelor food you know it's like sure oh, right yeah oh, it's packaged it's convenient you don't have to yeah. cut that thing to ham yourself yeah it's, right and the thing rewatching this and i forget this every time they really do take their time to set things up and misdirect mm. the audience because you look and you buy this on dvd or, or you rent it from amazon prime and you see the psycho house, you see maybe a shower or something. I even saw uh, a cover of the novel of like the French edition that it just shows a naked woman with being stabbed as the cover. It's like, dear God, like that's more that's like, explicit than the film. I mean, it's also, you know, French, right? So, of course, it's right. nudity uh, is up front and center. But um, in the film, you know, you it does set up what um, she needs the money for it. She's had this kind of, you know, like uh, extended lunchtime afternoon delight sort of uh, uh, tryst with mm-hmm. uh, Marion Crane, played by Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, Janet Lee, is um, having all these, you know, this stuff with her boyfriend, Sam Loomis, and he keeps on, he's basically bitching and moaning about, oh, I just need a few more years and I'll save money and now I'll, I don't know, I'm talking like a reporter, but I'll um, <laughs> save, you know, I'm going to go and save money and uh, then I can pay off my uh my alimony and then we can move and we can you know be married and live in a proper house otherwise you'd be living in a cardboard box like with me you don't want that right well that's that's the first the first like bait and switch because the movie it sets up in this opening scene is a movie about jealous lovers possibly a plot to murder a wife uh and i love that we never get it and it's like it starts out like a film noir Basically, like, you know, yeah. you've got, you know, the, the afternoon tryst and then you've got the stolen money and the woman on the run. This is like your average film noir 101 stuff right here, you know, black and white, set in a city, someone goes out of town and then, oh, no, it takes that hard, hard right turn. And there is also another thing that I think is just so goddamn creepy is that when she pulls in and you see the silhouette of mother mm. in the window and there's just something endlessly it freaks me out so much of just like faces and windows, like being watched. And, sure. you know, in hindsight, you know, it's a, it's a corpse or Norman dressed as mother, which is equally creepy. Um, just, you know, that silhouette in the music, this, the music is perfect. Like this um, Bernard Herrmann's score. It just, it's, it's like a knife. It cuts. It's just it's so precise and incisive. It's, uh, it's so brilliant. But yeah, when she gets to the motel and everything, and then like, you gradually pick up on these like little subtle visual cues of like the birds. And he says, they're not imposing animals. You know, he doesn't like stuffing beasts, but the way they're positioned in the room is so predatory. You have the owls in the corner, you know what I mean? Like there's this like un- unspoken horror kind of cr- crowding Vivian Lee as uh, we get closer into Bates motel. And it's such mm-hmm. a brilliant 
brilliant concept. And well, he's talking oh, about his hobby of taxidermy. You know, he's all very, he's all very matter of fact, and it's not too expensive. I mean, you just need some sawdust, needle, and thread. It's the <laughs> chemicals that are expensive. Like the way the way he talks, <laughs> the way he just drops how difficult it is to source the preservative chemicals. Oh, I know, <laughs> it's right? Just yeah. so creepy. That's what? the creepiest part, not the part about stitching the animals back together. I'm going to let my cat out of the room. Uh, keep on talking for a minute. Yeah. And oh, um, so, oh, something I do, I really want to talk about, because we talk, we talk about the money, because, because, because Marion Crane steals uh, $40,000 from her employer, who I guess presumably is a real estate agent. Um, yeah, but, I guess, yeah. Yeah. But that $40,000, it's paid by uh, Mr. Cassidy, who's, who's, who's the charming uh, drunk that I impersonated at the opening of the show. Oh, yeah. And. And it's $40,000 because his daughter's getting married and he wants to buy a nice little starter home for his, his wife and his son-in-law. And, and that's a, that's a moment. So my, my wife and I about year, year and a half ago became homeowners. Um, we are paying more than four times as much, not adjusted for inflation. I'm sure it's even more right. horrific adjusted for inflation. There's like at that moment, yeah, we're going to, they're going to buy, I want to buy a house for him. It's $40,000. I wanted to reach through the screen and grab someone by the lapels and send a warning to the past about inflated yes. real estate prices and home well, equity. I mean, you went real estate prices, you know, I live on the, the West coast, although in Portland, Oregon, it's, it's comparatively affordable, although it's becoming less so. I mean, for a little townhouse, we paid 250000 And after one year of home ownership, we've only, uh, you know, paid like $4,000 on principal, and the rest is interest. It's just ugh, such a big... And at the same time, it's cheaper than renting like a two-bedroom apartment, which, aside from all the, the initial cost... It's, and it's, despite it's being cheaper, it is somehow harder to do. Yes. <laughs> Oh, oh my God! Yeah, the process is so convoluted. Not not just the paperwork, but you need a few thousand up front to. I mean, people don't want to hear about first first home finance. Uh, listening to Sequelcast Two and Friends uh, on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Go to Greenlit Podcast for more info. Yeah. So, but with I mean, we're talking about creepy things in the house, and and that's fine. We'll get there in a second. But one thing that always gets me every time for some reason is uh, she you know she steals the money and and is uh, driving through the night. And pulls over and, and kind of sleeps on the side of the road, and a cop wakes her up. And oh, I, yeah. I always think the actor that plays the cop looks a bit like uh, Clancy Brown. Um, reminded me of uh, Herman Munster. <laughs> I could see that just a large, almost looks like a floating head in some ways. You, you don't see a whole it's lot so, of them. It's surreal and terrifying, though. Like, it, it, uh... And then she goes after that to buy the car, and then he's like in the background, and you think he's going to catch her or arrest her, and nothing quite happens. He doesn't. He isn't quite concerned enough, but he knows something's a little bit fishy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it's like I love that line. It's like, oh, you never have the uh, customer high pressure of the salesman. I always thought that was a hoot. Um, well, I love again, that, like, she's, that, so. like the car salesman. Everything he says sounds like a rehearsed line as part of oh, the yeah. salesman pattern. Yes. Yeah, what does he say? He's like, I won't have it. He's like, oh, first customer of the day is always most difficult, so I'm letting you know now, you know. <laughs> Again, it's, it's so hammy. And um, But she's right, though. She's like, I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm just buying a car. I don't really, you know, need the freaking details about it. Just give me the damn thing. And um, and then again, it's like, you know, Hitchcock makes police terrifying because he has a deeply rooted fear of law enforcement because he was thrown in a little history trivia, you know, the story he was... Cox stealing a candy bar as a kid, so um, 
his father took him to the police station. They locked him in a cell when he was like six. And they're like, this is what we do to naughty little boys. And it like really screwed him up, <laughs> um, which is one of the reasons why he has such anxiety about law enforcement and cops. Um, and that also makes rain scary. Like there are times when I'm driving and we'll have like a rainstorm. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is psycho rain. Like I'm going to have to pull over. I'm going to get murdered. <laughs> oh, no, he and, really perfectly captures that feeling you get when you are driving through a storm and, and are seriously concerned for your safety. One, oh, one thing I want to say about the cop, and this is going to echo some statements I'm going to make uh, later on, because they, they do make the cop a terrifying presence. And part of it's because we never see him take off his glasses. We never see mm-hmm. human eyes. Yes, and right. just the fact that when we look at his face, there are just these two, might as well be two hollow holes. That is delightful foreshadowing of the empty eye sockets we're going to mm-hmm. see on, mm-hmm. on Mama Bates. There, there you yeah. go. There's, there's that. You also, I mean, Hitchcock, is, is uh, especially in his later films, is more quite interested in psychology. And you have basically scenes portraying the anxiety of what it, for the first half uh, is Marion's, uh, you know, anxiety. And she's imagining on Monday what the conversations are going to be. Oh, the cash was supposed to be deposited at the bank. It's not there. What's happening? And oh, oh, where did she go? And, you know, kind of imagining what the situation will be is kind of worried uh, and everything. And, and yet when she gets to the hotel, I'd love you have little details like how she hides the cash and, the middle of some newspapers, how she, on her ledger, she subtracts the amount that she used to pay for the car. It's uh-huh. like, well, that's evidence, dude. I mean, even though she flushes it down the toilet, it's like, why even write that down? Oh, you know, what's also most frustrating, too, is that when they're having their little sandwiches and milk, um, she, you, she basically like, confesses that she's going to go back. And she goes like, I, you know, what? I'm not going to run away from this big thing. I'm actually going to go back and confront what I'm running from, you know? And that's what makes it like so frustrating. And even like when she checks it, you see Norman going for like cabin number four, and then you see his hand kind of like, like eh, I'm gonna do cabin number one, so I can do my weird peeping tom thing. And oh, that you know, peeping tom thing is so creepy. It's so creepy. And then like he goes from like a you know adorable little boy next door to like that sexual anger rises up in him, and you see him go from that to and then he Repressed, just kind of like shuts yeah. down. Yeah, and then he shuts down and goes becomes mother basically. And, that's and it's, so it's three different actresses that do the voice of mother. When I first watched this, I assumed it was Anthony Perkins. I'm like, oh, that really does sound like a woman. But no, it was like right. three different women's voices. I, I I don't recall if they bring back the same voices for the mother and then the sequels. I guess we'll find that out. Um, but Jeanette Nolan is one of them. Mm-hmm. And I, I do find it a bit of a stretch that when uh, Marianne's getting, you know, all, all kind of uh, settled in her room, she can hear the arguments from the house, but the house is kind of far away up a hill in the distance, and they're talking behind what looked like closed windows. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you could hear that. I mean, it's a movie, of course. It's not real, completely realistic, but I, that, I found that a little bit of a stretch. And yet she tries to give um, Norman Bates some encouragement, like, oh, you should stand up to your mother. You mm-hmm. know, I think, don't you want to go out and see the world and, and these sort of uh, sentiments? And they never and say it, what kind of sandwiches she eats, do they? It all looks oh, like no, she's she eats eating a the cheese bread. sandwich. Uh, sorry, what was that, Thrasher? She eats a cheese sandwich. Oh, okay. excuse me. You, you she, can okay, so see, dairy on dairy. Got it. Yeah, you can clearly see she's got bread with a slice of cheese on it. Uh, you, you think it's a dry cheese sandwich? You think he does put some mayo mustard mayonnaise on it? She spreads something, so that's either got to be butter or mayonnaise. Yeah. Oh, that's true. They did use butter on sandwiches quite a lot those days. Mm-hmm. 
vitamin, uh, vitamin D. But um, but I also think it's like also when you get like there. It, this is back when California just you know go. This is out in the desert. I assume out in the middle of nowhere. So you know when without the humming of like a lot of electricity and cars and stuff, it's you know you could probably hear someone carrying on if they were. If they were uh, getting into it, you know, argument-wise, and that that scene always really creeped me out because, like, sometimes you have you ever if you ever do hear your neighbors arguing or something like that, it's like there's something really uncomfortable about it. Oh no, I have heard yeah. neighbors arguing before. I I had I had to call the police on the neighbors once. Uh, oh. Yeah, it's really uncomfortable. It's yeah. Not not just neighbors, but if you're at a hotel and someone like the room over is doing something weird, like at least. If you're like me, like I feel like you can't really do anything about it. Uh, but mm-hmm. like I, we, um, oh, I think for my ninth anniversary or something last year, we went to some uh, hotel or something or other uh, by the beach, and uh, the people next to us were talking loudly on a cell phone for like five hours in a row. Oh, and this yeah. kind of hillbilly guy, I'm like, okay, so we gotta go here and <laughs> get the barbecue potato chips and potato salad and bring them back to the hotel and you can come bring your beer. No, not that beer. No, not that beer. No, maybe that beer. I mean, it was the most obnoxious. Like, maybe listening to five minutes of that would be amusing, but for five hours, your brain just kind of learns to block it off. Because you're in a hotel, like, your hotels are always a little bit kind of creepy or weird. You're like, oh, how much did they, are they actually cleaning the mattresses? Is is stuff gonna, I mean, I've never had things stolen, but like, my my sister on a business trip had a laptop stolen and stuff uh, yeah, that they could just deactivate remotely. But it's just like, what's going to happen here? Am I uh, going to check out on time on that last day? What checkout time? All it's kinds that, of little. It's that creepy on. vulnerability and especially yes, like, yes. that vulnerability. And also like, you know, just being a woman and just think this is the weirdo. I just agreed to have sandwiches with, you know what I mean? And you know, getting into this, you know, violent, sounding argument with you know who would we would assume is his mother and just that like that very that that horrible voice is just so it really gets under your skin um and that, that scene always just stuck out to me so much it's really creepy and then you think about it in hindsight that you imagine this guy having this conversation with himself and that makes it even more terrifying <laughs> sure and i mean after the infamous shower scene thrasher do you have some thoughts about that well, this was a, this was a, I mean, it, I feel like we, that's so, so disgusted film criticism. So aside from the fact that it is just so effective. So I noticed a, uh, well, two, two things. One, just that shot of, of her corpse with the eye open staring into the camera yeah. and how long it lingers on that. And that that's not a still like there's liquid dripping. That's clearly not a still. Yeah. That is, that's just one of those shots. That's a pure miracle to put off right on par with when Bruce Campbell is burying his girlfriend in the first evil dead and the so and it's corpse eye view and the soil just so happens to frame his face as he throws it over the camera. But the other thing that stood out, so, you know, uh, towards the end of the shower scene, she grabs the shower curtain and pulls the whole thing down. And each of those shower curtain rings just pops. Um, And at the end of the movie, when Norman is finally captured, when he comes in in one of his mother's old dresses, uh, when when, when Sam grabs him and, like, tries to restrain him, he pulls off the dress, and the snaps on the dress pop in the exact same way. Mm. Oh, interesting, yeah. 
It's um, and that scene, Thrasher, like you said, when it pulls away from the corpse and that that lifeless eye. I guess like lifeless eyes are kind of a theme throughout the film, going from the the police officer to Marion Crane to and the taxidermy to, to Norma. Yeah, then the taxidermy, right? And um, there's a this terrifying feeling too of that, like in it's something you see in other uh, more effective films that like explore homicide and stuff like that. Um, I think Shoya Memora nails it in um, Vengeance is Mine, and even the Ryan Murphy series, um, The Assassination of Johnny Versace. It's that freaky loneliness of murder, and like a, the, the whole thought of being alone in a room with a corpse is so terrifying. You know, it's so it's so like uh, yucky in this existential way and like when he's you know cleaning the room and everything you really get the nitty-gritty of it i don't think it's something you really got in movies mm. um i guess i'm getting ahead of myself but that shower scene is you know it's expertly crafted but i mean it's something that you almost don't want to talk about because it's been talked about so much but it's just so goddamn great oh and in that mean, montage of, of shots that that editing is extremely quick for the time uh oh yeah and uh, you only see the knife twice um, it's yeah, not I always never... Janet Lee in the shot when it's this kind of overview shot. It was a body double that was wearing mm-hmm. kind of a body stocking, which is why it looks kind of weird. Right. Yeah. Cause you know, I get basically it's the, the illusion of, of, of stabbing that makes it, and you hear that the sound effect too, of like, you know, it's like the Foley effect was probably something like stabbing a watermelon or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's funny cause I saw this when I was young. So, this is going to sound so dorky, but I remember if my, my brother and I were taking a shower, one of us would shut off the light oh. in the bathroom and be like, Norma Bates is coming to get you. <laughs> and then when I found oh. out it was chocolate syrup, I almost like didn't believe it. Cause like, yeah. <laughs> so I actually would run water in my bathtub and pour Hershey's syrup in just to like, see if it looked like if it matched and it never really looked quite right to me. And for maybe no chocolate... other reason. Exactly. I and mean, maybe chocolate syrup was thinner back then. It would have had corn syrup in it. <laughs> it would have had a would have been a can as well. Um, that that oh, might yeah. make all the difference. Exactly. Could be uh, another do another experiment later. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, all this stuff it takes it, it's a misdirect, and then oh, here you think is the heroine of the film is dead, and I do have to say I don't think the second half of the film is quite matches that first half, and maybe it's the shower scene, maybe it's just how things are set up and the misdirect. But you do get her, her sister, and you get the the Arbogast, you get the detectives, you get kind of more the the procedural, kind of typical uh, investigation. Well, it's interesting though for um, well the slasher genre didn't really exist, but what's interesting is that this feels like a very rational reaction to how things would go down. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the boss hires a private eye because he doesn't want to get the police involved. He doesn't want to get her in trouble. He just wants the money back. So this seems like a very, like, you know, realistic way of going about things. You know, it's not a lot of high emotions and dramatic crescendos. It's like, okay, and, like, you've got, like, the kindly old police sheriff who's like, what does the wife say when they get out of church? He's like, oh, file the report during dinner. It'll be nicer that way. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was adorable and so hometowny. you know. But no, and well, the, the well, he's, too. well, he's just a nice, competent private investigator. And well, and I think you mentioned, Matt, that you didn't feel that this next part was was quite successful. I think yeah. part of it is because Arbogast, when Arbogast gets murdered, 
it's not nearly as memorable. I think it's just as well shot, although him yeah. falling backwards down the stairs is a little bit awkward. That kind of camera interaction with space and the character is much better handled in Vertigo. But like again, it's it's just not it's not as memorable. It doesn't have the same impact. I think I also, you know, you as you as the audience, you know who who done it, right? There's not right. A mystery just, there, but there's well, we know who done it because we are living in the 21st century. The audience true. at the time wouldn't. I see. That's that's no, that's fair. I um, think it's um. I I there's something weird. I go back and forth with the the Arpagas murder because um, on the one hand, it's a, it is a little awkward the way he kind of like kind of slippy slips down the stairs and the sound effect almost gets away from you because you get so caught up in the music. Um, but the initial shock of um of Norma running out the room. And you're like, you're. I remember thinking when I first saw this, like that lady's got some like power, man. She is like going for it, you know. Like she comes out of that room and she, that knife is flying. Um, she is doing, she is getting business done. Um, but I do like it. It has this kind of surreal effect as he's kind of like, you know, sliding down the stairs. It's a, it's an interesting effect. Um, I, I do go back and forth on it, but the older I get, the more for it I, I am. Um. It's just very strange and interesting. It's a very, I think surreal is really the word for it, though. Oh, something I do uh, want to talk about. This this movie gives you plenty of time to breathe, which I think really mm-hmm. helps both build build tension, but also lure you into a false sense of security before there's any kind of like shock. But one thing I love is when Norman Norman disposes of people's cars and bodies by putting them into this like peat bog where they sink, and damned if they don't show the whole car sinking in one sustained shot. Oh, yeah, and then it doesn't go down, and then you're like, oh, my God, go down. And then you're like, oh, shit, they just tricked me into rooting for the killer or <laughs> someone who we assume is in league with the killer because at the time we don't know it's you know, Norma, Norman Bates. On Apocrypals, we talk about the parts of the Bible that a lot of people skip over. Like the wizard battles. The angel jacuzzis. A goat full of sins. 500 drunk elephants. And a man named Porky Party. And yes, that's all really in there. All this and more on Apocrypals every other week on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Need some adventure in your life? What Mad Universe is a podcast about the history of sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, where we delve the depths of pop culture history. Everything's the same politically, but we have ray guns. The the actual motive isn't to explore something that's, quote, scientifically possible. or. But neither is Star Wars, and I know there's arguments about that, but I would definitely consider Star Wars science fiction. You haven't read Dune! No, I haven't. You can never be the Kwisatz Haderach. What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Like you said, we live in the 21st century. But yeah, that's the great flip. That's the that's the genius of Hitchcock. Is that like you're like, oh my god, like it's it, it's not sinking. Please sink. And you're like, wait, why do I want it to sink? <laughs> oh, and and related to that, one thing I love is when when uh, Crane hides the money in the rolled up newspaper. I love that from like from that point on, they they Hitchcock keeps finding ways to keep that newspaper in the shot as if that's going to be the MacGuffin for the movie. And then I love just how arbitrarily newspaper gets thrown into the trunk with the money gone. Yep. <laughs> this thing that we've been lured to believe is going to be so important has yeah. no bearing on the movie from this point forward. I love, I'm looking here at one of the vintage posters for the film and it, of course, Hitchcock, uh, you know, kind of quickly took advantage of, um, kind of branded himself as, you know, having a cameo in his films and being involved in the marketing and stuff in this poster as Hitchcock pointing as a watch. And it says in big letters is required that you see psycho from the very beginning. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was a big thing. 
Yeah, this is the big thing. Yeah, it's like you know, no one will be admitted after the beginning of Psycho. That was in the trailers. That was in the marketing. That was yep. in a policy that many theaters were expected to enforce. This really was the end of the old way that theaters did business where you bought a ticket and could just hang out in the screening room all day. You would show up whenever, watch the movie, mm. for, possibly from the middle, and then come back around to the middle and leave. This movie put an end to it. This this is the movie mm-hmm. that made going to the movies an event that you had to plan and that needed to run on schedule. And this is quite possibly the first hot take spoiler movie. This was the don't tell your friends, yeah. you can't get yeah. in late. You know, don't, don't tell go. your friends, the shocking ending to Psycho. Right. I mean, even right. in fine print really on this, this poster, the manager of this theater has been instructed at the risk of his life not to admit <laughs> to the theater any persons after the picture starts. That's and I mean, you, th- you think of how things are, are now in movie theaters, not that I've been in one in the year 2020 with the COVID-19 pandemic, but, you know, you typically have to get a reservation first using an online mm-hmm. system to buy the ticket, which I kind of like getting the assigned seat uh, or yeah. reserving your seat because everyone kind of has their favorite seat in the theater. But yeah. it's a more, you know, it's a much more formal process. But I mean, I don't know about you guys, but as a kid, I would, or as a teenager, I would go and buy one movie ticket then sneak into six movies and stay there all day and try to oh yeah you'd, totally. have, you'd have someone you know watching out for security and someone else in the bath you know to let people go to the bathroom and not have them catch you uh, right but um yeah it was uh it was funny too because like like you said um i the freaking remake i saw that fucking thing twice just because i could get into the movie so easily back oh then. okay and there, there was nothing else to do you know i was like 10 <laughs> Um, well, 12, I guess, technically, but, um, but yeah, I saw it twice, you know, not for, you know, liking it that much, but, um, interesting bit of trivia, but, um, I, what I think is really brilliant about the film's second half is that, so Arvagas gets, um, gets whacked, and then the, uh, the sister and her boyfriend, you know, Vera Miles, they, um, they log in and everything, and there is this weird ability that this weird thing Hitchcock can do, and he can photograph regular things in the plane of day, in plain sight, and make it really fucking creepy, like the statue of the hands folded over. Mm-hmm. Oh, just, yeah, the memento a, mori. Yeah, it was a very creepy image. And, like, the scene where she, like, screams at catching herself in the mirror, it's like, I jump every time when that happens because I just don't know. There's something very unsettling about that room, and, like, when she gets to Norman's room, it's like, oh, f- fucking forget about it. You have that really weird stuffed animal, that rabbit stuffed animal that's like a frowny, sad face. It's really creepy. Um, and, like, he can still tell you it's like, a bunch of, like, ch- 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 like, children stuff in his bed, like, stuffed animals and, like, toys and shit. And, like, a little, like, cot almost. It looks like a little, like, almost looks like one of those cots you fold on the wall, sort of, like. Mm. And just kind of, like, kind of, the, if you can, like, uh, like conjure up these scenes of fear in, in broad daylight it's a real testament to a director's ability and of course we're talking about alfred hitchcock so like yeah there <laughs> well it's that point that the, the movie does introduce a really interesting puzzle because when uh sam uh and and uh crane's sister like when they meet that local police detective where they're trying to like sort of piece things together you know, he's like, well, it can't be no, it can't be Norman's mother. Norman's mother died ten years ago. I was at the funeral. It's, it's I just so turn- great. And they keep doing these things to make you wonder: is she living or is she dead? This indentation right. on the bed that can't possibly be there if no one's sleeping in the bed. And but there's a memento mori. You wouldn't have a memento mori for a person mm-hmm. who was still alive unless they faked yeah. their death. 
It just keeps you guessing, which I love. Even the sheriff's wife is like, I chose the dress. She was buried in periwinkle blue. <laughs> which, it's which, like, if this had been a color film, I bet we would have seen that dress. Exactly, yeah. Right, I mean, there's also, I mean, speaking of, you know, references to this film, there is, in 2012, there is a biopic called Hitchcock that had Anthony Hopkins play Hitchcock and Helen Mirren played the wife that was about the making of Psycho. Oh, yes. And, and Hitch's relationship with his wife. It's a fun little kind of trifle of a movie. I um, liked it. It's fun, but yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's minor. A very goofy shot at the end when he's like, I wonder what my next picture will be. Yeah. And then like a bird lands on his shoulder and he oh. walks away. It's Yeah. <laughs> a bird, the bird has an eye patch and wants to tell him about the rope initiative. Oh, God. <laughs> Whispers but... Bodega Bay into his ear. Yeah. Jamaica Inn. Yeah. So yes. it's. But I mean, it's difficult to talk about the film in some ways because so much has already been been said about oh, yeah. it. But I think it it holds up. Although the speech at the end, you have to consider when this was made. But you have this endless psychoanalysis, which I think would have been kind of novel at the time. Oh and, yeah. Well, and you saw this. Uh, you we've talked about this, Thrasher, that you know they did this kind of trope in science fiction novels and stuff at the time too, where they explain well because the character is a homosexual. That's why he did all these things. <laughs> well, yeah. well, the thing, the funny thing is, like this whole like psychoanalysis thing. When it started, it took me out of the movie, but it kind of won me over because it, the longer the speech, the Doctor Richmond speech, the longer it went on, the more it's like, oh, this character is going over in his head how he's going to write an amazing paper about this case <laughs> and become a famous psychologist. Um, but. <laughs> So so yeah, it 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 won me over. But it, you know what it kind of you know what it kind of does though. It reminds me like when you're in college and you have that one friend who writes plays, and in all of his plays, rather than having a true climax, he just has a character come forward and explain <laughs> the play to you. That's kind of what it reminded me of. But I really love. But I love how how frank it is. Like no no, he's not a transvestite. With a transvestite, it's sort of a change of gender. It's a sexual thrill. This is a person, well, I mean, it would have been like called a split personality at the time, but we now know as dis disassociative identity disorder. And actually, for all I know, even that may be out of date. The science of psychology has yeah. progressed quite a bit from this point. But, you know, it's one, of the, it's one of those things, like, this is not at all how that mental disorder works, no. but the way it mm -hmm. works in this movie is perfect for drama. Right. But, but also at the time, the... with what was known... Yeah. And it's like, it is very, like, they... But I will say, uh, since I saw it at such a young age, it actually was perfect. It really put everything in perspective for me because I was like, I don't know, eight or something like that. So I was like, oh, so that's what was going on. Because a lot of that, you know, psychoanalysis shit was over my head to the point of like not even getting to an airspace near my head. But the, the, so, yeah, you know, if, for all you eight-year-olds out there who are going to watch Psycho, there you go. You can totally comprehend it. But yeah, and so so you know uh, we discover that Norman uh, uh, underwent a you know had a had a had a sort of break, uh, killed his uh, uh, po poisoned his mother and her boyfriend, but then felt so guilty he dug her up and started to sort of become her and like has this alternate personality that's just the worst possible version of his mother. And it now now that he's been caught. And that the mother personality has just kind of taken over. And there's just that creepy bit where he's just in the blanket 
and he's just kind of just sitting there and you hear his internal monologue in his mother's voice, you know, and, and we see that fly on his skin. I'm not even going to swat away that fly because when mm-hmm. they look at me, they'll know that they'll say, oh, they, she wouldn't hurt a fly. And like, like even in his head, like I have to pin this on Norman. I can't go to jail. Yep. And that, that one little freaking microsecond of the overlaid image of the of Mother Skeleton over yeah. Norma's face as they're dredging up the car. I mean, that I remember. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't see it for years, and the that scene always got under my skin. I didn't know why until you know later on, when I was like, you know, more of an adult, and I was like, holy shit, that's you had to like. You know, slow it down like VHS. Um, and you're like, holy shit, that's the that's the skeleton. That's the, the the bone corpse face on it. And that little touch is like, that's finesse, man. That's like master filmmaking 101. There, that's that's you know, fucking horror masterclass right there. I just, it's it's just so goddamn brilliant. And then you know, the dredging up the car, and you're like, hey, maybe they'll find that forty thousand. That's really what it's all about, if you think about well, it. Well, I've even read some people <laughs> at, at the end yeah. when uh, you see the sheriff and he's talking about, oh, this was a crime of passion. Some people say there's a bulge in his pocket, and that's the cash that he pocketed. That that ah. sounds a little too let-me-do-a-secret-film-explainer <laughs> YouTube bonkers theory. Yeah, I, I think so, but I'm like, well, it's, it's interesting that people try and make those connections. Right. Like, but, but yeah, overall, certainly, you know, Psycho, I would say unqualified sequel yes uh it's a classic but i think you know this might be the most watched film school film apart from citizen kane hmm. but it it's a uh, overly studied film i think for a reason you can learn a lot it's i don't, I don't think i would call it the first slasher film exactly but it you know some well, of these it things pre- it, it predates the giallos and it predates yeah. the uh, herschel gordon lewis gore films i i you could say that this prefigured the slasher. Yeah, no, I think yeah, that's fair. Like um, for... I mean, I mean, it's all it's all their sexually tortured killer, lots of stabbing. Yeah, there also was elaborate a, a, death sequences in the eighties. There is a, a three issue uh, comic book adaptation that um, they got the likeness rights for everyone except for Anthony Perkins. So Anthony Perkins in the comic um, doesn't look like Anthony Perkins, but everyone else does. It's very strange. But the the artwork of these beautiful paintings. Anthony Perkins is a really interesting dude because um, he really he, he didn't get typecast really, but he really did own the role of uh, of Norman Bates, and we'll talk about that more in the the subsequent uh, episodes. But um, that might have had something to do with it. Maybe he didn't feel like he wanted the likeness to be in in a comic book or something. You know, maybe he thought it was reductive or something like that. Well, it, it, you know, the artwork of... is beautiful. People say it ruined his career. I don't. I don't think "ruined" is the right word exactly, but it did. He did get typecast a lot and was, you know, doing kind of like silly game show appearances and commercials and all these things. But yeah, um, and also like I think he was a very he was a very anxious dude. Like it's funny if you watch the trailer yeah. for like on the beach, it's like the great premiere and it shows everyone all the, all the stars. So it's like all the you know great celebrity couples, and then it cuts to like and Anthony Perkins, and he's just kind of like, eh, like yeah, don't photograph me. Um, <laughs> But also, I think the interesting thing is that after this, he did a lot of, you know, European art films and stuff. He was in a couple of Claude Chabrot films. Um, Orson Welles is a trial. Um, uh, that great late John Huston film, The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. Um, some Alan Parker stuff. So he had an interesting career in that I think he just was doing his own thing. Um, again, he like a lot of art films. He um, uh, 
was it something of Sheila? He co-wrote a mystery movie set on a ship with uh, Stephen Sondheim. Oh, um, let me see. Here. It was in Turner Classic Movies this past week. Um, yeah, let me see. And I think that they, I think they might have been an item at a time. I'm not quite sure because he was. Uh, yeah. It was also interesting too. If um, there's a, I referenced this earlier. It was um, Fear Strikes Out, uh, a movie about a pitcher who had an overbearing father and eventually has a has a mental breakdown and that was the movie that got him noticed to Hitchcock in order in, in casting Psycho. So it's a it's actually it's an interesting film, Fear Strikes Out. I think it was nineteen fifty seven. If you like fifties uh, baseball films, um, check it out. And if you like fifties baseball films that feature a mental breakdown scene with Anthony Perkins, definitely check it out. Certainly, and he, uh, you know, later went into directing, including when we get there, Psycho Three. So, uh-huh. yeah. Thrasher, any thoughts on Psycho? Uh, so, well, of course, uh, sequel. Yes, there's. Uh, I, I wish we could have talked more about Bernard Herrmann's music because we, we've already actually oh. talked about this score because it was reused in Reanimator. Uh, we, and Quite a long we time talked ago. Talked a lot about it yeah. there. Yeah. So actually, listen to our episode about Reanimator if you want our thoughts on the Bernard <laughs> Herrmann score from Psycho. Um, uh, and also, if you want to talk about the elderly, call in asking about pets, because right now we're doing our show about the school system. Um, anyway, uh, the th- one thing I want to talk about, uh, so when we are introduced to Sam's shop, that like that hardware shop, uh, as the third act uh, is, or is the uh, yeah, third act is ready to begin, um, there's a woman talking to the clerk about like, about this like insect poison. It's like, oh, it kills everything. But is it painless? I have to know if it is it painless. If something has to be killed, it should at least be painless. I'm like, is there another Hitchcock movie going on? She's she's <laughs> gonna kill like her husband or someone, right? Right. Mm. It's very strange. And, and it um, just sort of stands in contrast because we just saw a woman killed in a very painful way. <laughs> this is this other woman <laughs> possibly contemplating murder, but really wanting to ensure a painful, peaceful death. Um, technically, though, I will say um, the reanimator score is very much derivative from Bernard Herrmann. It's technically it, it doesn't actually have any credit. It's just very, very heavily, heavily borrows from Bernard Herrmann's score. It, just, it uh, is, just it is his to get away with it. Yeah, I don't know how <laughs> they. I presume somebody got paid. Well, you know what it is. I could totally believe Bernard Herrmann or his estate. You know, as well, you paid the ASCAP fee so you can use it. Don't give me credit because it's my understanding that Bernard Herrmann oh. was like his film scores was very specific about it is exists as the part of the film. You should not listen to it or experience mm-hmm. it outside of the filmic context. I don't because, completely um, agree with that, but I understand right. that impulse. But um, like when he was scoring um, the great Brian Tamala film Sisters, he would, I guess Brian Tamala thought it would be a good idea for him to like, you know, play Bernard Herrmann music to like, you know, kind of give him an idea for what they were going for. And he was like, got like really mad he was like cut that shit out like i'm gonna score this fucking movie and just let me do it <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so i thought that was telling of like like you just said thrasher it exists as a part of the movie not to be enjoyed uh, aside from it which is funny yeah. yeah the whodunit film by the way that perkins wrote with sondheim is called the last of sheila okay cool uh, an obscure 1973 uh film but it's supposed to be pretty ingeniously plotted and Stephen Sondheim, I think every year with his friends, would do this kind of mystery party where he'd put clues all over New York City and people would have to try and solve things. Uh, Lover of puzzles, that's that's a whole separate thing. But yeah, so on to 
pitch a sequel. It's so hard to do because there's their sequels and then the way this ends. But yeah, I, I would do um, My Psycho 2 would involve would pick up from the first one leaves off. The police would be investigating would stumble upon the sinking car and uh, the cash would fall out. And some a cop would pocket the cash and then the, the you would kind of follow that story. Uh, it'd have very little to do with Psycho aside from that, but I think the marketing would be misleading. And it would be, um, in the tradition of Porky's or something, it would be called Psycho the next day. <laughs> so it's just a cop has money and has like the craziest night on the town. It would be almost like a after hours <laughs> raucous. Right, like real time. <laughs> then you could do I mean, another sequel just to maintain film rights, uh, Psycho's Pimpin' Norman. <laughs> yeah, sure. It airs once on DirecTV. Uh, <laughs> yes. There you go. Uh, Thrasher. Right, so, so my pitch of sequel, it's going to take place maybe like 10 or so years later. So like, like 1970s, it is going to tap into the giallos and the early slasher films. But so uh, Norman has been institutionalized and basically he's become a case study. Uh, that that doctor, uh, Dr. Richmond, has built a whole built a whole career out of out of psychoanalyzing Norman and applying, you know, what his, his theories to criminal psychology. So he's now he's now a uh, professor of psychology, uh, tenured professor. And so he has a class of graduate students and, you know, and they're all, uh, you know, they're, they're helping him study Norman. They're interviewing Norman. They're writing their own papers on Norman. Uh, and then all of a sudden a series of murders that seem to reproduce all of the murders that we see happen in this film, but also the murder of Norman's mother, uh, and, uh, and her lover start happening. Uh, and it slowly and it slowly dawns on one of the keener students. Oh, oh, holy shit! One of us is being mentored by Norman Bates, and one of us is trying to continue these murders. And so it becomes a whole thing of who in the class can you trust? Who's killing who? Who the next victim is going to be? Uh, and and it, oh, it's just going to be it's it's just going to be uh, delightful. It'll be a bit bloodier, a bit gorier. Uh, it'll try to be. Uh, it will try to be for the '70s as forward-thinking in its editing as Psycho was forward-thinking in its editing in the '60s. Excellent. And we'll we'll call it a, a Psycho case study. There you go, and Alex. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna play off the the forty thousand thing too. Um, so once they fish the car out, a uh, a very sly, uh, the the tow truck operator who fishes the thing out is is able to pocket the money before anyone else catches it. And since you know Norman, you know, is going to be locked up, and there's really no uh, next of kin, the the police uh, auction off the base hotel. Well, the, the the tow truck kid ends up actually buying it through an auction, um, and starts running the hotel and cleans it up, and he's you know got a little business going for himself, bought from the the ill-gotten gains of the money he achieved. Um, and what comes with the, the hotel is also the house. Um, so what happens is that he goes downstairs and, you know, the fruit cellar has been unattended to for months on end. So he goes down and he's overwhelmed by a giant cloud of fruit flies and he inhales them all and, and, and dies and becomes kind of like a, a urban legend amongst the, the town. Kind of like a lame fruit fly candy man scenario. And it will be called uh, Psycho 2 Lame Candy Man. Hmm. Hmm. 
There you go. And speaking of Candyman, that uh, remake comes out later this year, I think, right? It's supposed to come yeah, out last I year. The, I keep watching the trailer for that, and it doesn't look really all that interesting. I don't know. I mean, uh, I believe Tony I mean, Todd I, I, reprises his role or something. I don't know. But then they don't. You, they have some of the same characters from the first film, but then they didn't get Virginia Madsen back to do that part. Um, I keep like looking at it. I've watched the trailer a bajillion times. I keep looking at it. I'm like. Nothing here looks interesting. <laughs> it's almost like the Ghostbusters, um, the, the new Ghostbusters movie we don't need. Or the uh, even the Batman show. None of these films look interesting to me. I don't know. They just look so boring and blank. I don't know. I, I remember, like, I see some mirrors and I hear, like, some stuff in the Candyman trailer. And that cut's really about it. It doesn't look interesting at all. But I'll right. watch it. I mean, Candyman, so. Sure. I mean, I, I sort of appreciate with the new Batman movie that apparently um robert pattinson was told to you know stick to his strict workout regimen and stuff during the pandemic and he refused and Mm -hmm. so he gained too much weight and had was sent the production was delayed so he could lose the weight because you can't have a puffy batman right i always i always picture this batman movie like being cut together very awkwardly because they can't film during covid so like i picture like a body double much larger than robert pattinson wrestling with someone <laughs> then like cut to, like a close-up of robert pattinson in like a hotel room being like you can't get me you know right it, it all i know is it's, it's, it's a lot I of bad guys i want a batman movie where he has more of a natural adam west physique you yeah. know what i'm fucking i'm sick of batman if i have to see it, martha yeah, Lee get shot up at that fucking hotel opera house one more time the fucking stupid pearls in slow motion i'm fucking just sick of batman now at this point i mean like i'm just so over batman we've had like nine batmans this, the past like decade it's just uh, oh and uh, then i guess the flash movie, movie is going to do some else world stuff where michael keaton is going to be batman in it and ben affleck's going to be batman in it or something it'll just be, this uh, is all getting batman, way batman. too complicated but uh <laughs> yes yes Okay, yeah. so one day we'll talk about Man of Steel, which is Thrasher's favorite movie featuring penis spaceships. You you spit <laughs> that out of your mouth. No, no. <laughs> I that. Uh, okay. I, I've already. I, I I don't remember what episode it was in, but I read my review of Man of Steel on an earlier sequel cast. Yeah, it was a few years Just ago. Just listen to that one regardless of whatever the hell episode it was. Better re-listen to our whole back catalog just to be safe. Okay. As the sequel cast archivist, I can attest. Alex, can you unplug and replug your headphones? Headset. Thanks. Yes. Great. Much better. Okay. So let's move on to um, what you're watching. It's you know it's been a while. We took a break, kind of for uh, Christmas and New Year's. Uh, I've been watching a lot, but I guess I'll mention something briefly that I saw was Wonder Woman '84, the second Wonder Woman film. I. I did not like it. It reminded me a bit of Batman Forever. Uh, it was way too long. Had too many bad guys. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the first Wonder Woman movie, you had kind of both the settings of Wonder Woman's uh, whatever, you know, protected island she grew up on. I don't quite remember the name. And you had World War One and all that stuff. Uh, I think made the settings kind of unique and the story was was good. And this, it just felt really flat in that it was by the same director, Patty Jenkins, as kind of a disappointment. Although I'm looking forward to her upcoming Star Wars Rogue Squadron film. Oh, cool, cool. 
Um, that's kind of a letdown because I really liked the first Wonder Woman. I, I mm-hmm. was really over the moon with it. I thought it was great, fun, uh, had some heart to it. Um, and then when I found out there was another Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman, I was pumped. And then I heard it was Wonder Woman 1984. And like my excitement just plummeted because I'm just like, enough of the 80s shit already, please, God. Like I'm just dying over here, man. Like, ugh, this 80s nostalgia shit, man. It's just killing me <laughs> get to the 90s i want to see a wonder woman who ties a sweater around her waist yeah honestly jeans. Oy, oy. Yeah, it, pulling the george lucas look with the plaid uh, button-up shirt and the, the jeans listening to nirvana is it cheaper to like film in malls nowadays because they're like vacant now <laughs> maybe that's you know, I, i've hmm. been to that mall oh, oh yeah yeah, that's the mall in Alexandria, Virginia. I have I have some formative memories there, but yeah, I had an aunt and uncle who who lived in Alexandria, and I would visit them a lot in the summer. And it, yeah, so I have been in that mall. I have stood in that food court where they filmed that open that uh, second opening fight scene. Looks like a nice food court. Did it have a a cheese steakery or any kind of fun kind of? It probably did. I never ate in the food court there, so I don't know. Oh, I see. Interesting. Uh, Alex, what's something you've been watching? Oh, geez, I've been watching tons of stuff. But um, since we're talking about Psycho, I watched a really, really good horror flick. Another horror flick based on Ed Gein, but more directly than like every other nine jillion movies based on Ed Gein called uh, Deranged. Have hmm. you guys heard of this one? No. It is unnerving. It is sincerely creepy and scary and weird and gross and um it's a real it's a it's grimy but it's not like in poor taste it's a really it's it's fairly well done and genuinely terrifying and the they don't outwardly call him ed guy ezra cobb and he's played by robert's uh robert's blossom who is the salt man in home alone so okay. if you um, ever want the Salt Man from Home Alone completely ruined, and <laughs> then watch Deranged. Um, but yeah, no, it's about as close as you'll ever get to like, a, I guess, if you ever want a definitive Ed Guy movie, I can't imagine who would actually want that. But um, Deranged from 1974 is a really creepy, um, really creepy, disarming um, uh, Ed Guy-inspired uh, uh, killer, serial killer film. Um, really horrifying really creepy and the the performance from robert blossom is really good uh yeah i would definitely recommend it if um if you're one of the more strong stomach uh listeners there you go uh, and thresher so i watched a another a classic horror film from 1977 nobuhiko obayashi's house yes i i i we, I do not have time to offer a description of this movie that will do it justice, <laughs> but uh, it there is a Criterion edition of this movie. Uh, uh, it is available on HBO Max, or whatever the hell the HBO streaming service is, it's on that. Um, I, I'm not sure where, where else you can see it. I don't care how you see it. Find a copy, watch House. It is an amazing, bonkers Japanese horror film that does so many things. And and after you've seen it, learn about how it was made because the story of how it was made is just as fascinating as the movie itself. It is. It's everything. It literally is everything. And it's, um, 
I think Ethan Hawke described it best. They did the Criterion thing where you go into the closet and they let you pick movies. And he picks House and he goes, this is the only film where a man turns into a pile of bananas wearing a hat and it makes sense to the story. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, yeah, banana, banana, banana. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And and keep in mind, it's it's ostensibly a horror movie. And and, it also does something that I I, I wish more movies would do. It plays around with the artificiality of film in a very satisfying way. And um, I have uh, like a little bootleg collection of Obayashi's movies. They're all like this in one way or another. They are all unhinged in like a beautiful, gleeful, playful, <laughs> macabre, comedic way. Great music, too. <laughs> oh, yes. Wonderful music. As sure as cherries were made for eating, as sure <laughs> as fish were made to swim in the sea. Oh, mm. yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely sea house. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Very good. So let's uh, do our sequel scene. You it t- you said it took you a while to find something with three characters, but you did. Yep this this is uh yeah so this is uh this is uh, Sam Loomis uh, and Lila Crane meeting with uh, Sheriff Chambers, the sheriff, the local sheriff from the town where Norman lives, uh, when they're just kind of trying to talk and find out what happened to the to Arbogast, the private eye. Okay, um, I'd like I to be the. Loved- sh- to oh, do the sheriff only because I want to do him as an Andy Griffith character. <laughs> All right. Um, who do you want to play, Alex? Let's see. I will. I will do um, Lila Crane, and I'm just give me one second to think of a voice. Okay. And I'll do Sam. Uh, Sam Loomis. I'm gonna do it as Walter Brennan. Okay. <laughs> so let let's uh, start. You mean the old woman I saw tonight wasn't Mrs. Bates? Now, wait a minute, Sam. Are you sure you saw an old woman? Yes, uh, in the house behind the motel. I called and I pounded, but she just ignored me. You mean to tell me you saw Norman Bates' mother? It had to be, because Arbogast said so, too. And the young man wouldn't let him see her because she was too ill. Oh, well, if uh, the woman up there is Miss Bates, uh, who's the woman buried in Greenlawn Cemetery? And why did she smell like rotting fish? <laughs> no, she wouldn't. She, he used the preservative chemicals. Yes, they're very expensive, too. Right. That's how you know. That's 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 how you show the love, a son's love, is through the preservative in chemicals. In <laughs> fact, every birthday he'd be like... Oh, it's my birthday. Oh boy, mother, more preservative chemicals. Now, there, there is, there. I feel like there's a there's a move there's a horror comedy to be made where an Andy Griffith type an Andy Griffith uh, type uh, type local sheriff with a Don Knotts style deputy have to track a serial killer. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Speaking of Don Knotts, anytime. Um... Oh, who, who the hell is that comedian? Dana uh, Gould? Yeah, Dana Gould does a Don Knotts impression. It just kills me. Oh, he yeah. played Don Knotts in The Simpsons, too. Yep. Oh, I bet. That makes sense. Um, well, he did, yeah. a, he did a whole thing where it was Andy Griffith. Uh, you, you turn you turn Prince songs into Andy Griffith end-of-show speeches. I was dreaming when I wrote this, so forgive me if I go astray. <laughs> Full credit to Dana Gould. Uh, check out his podcast, uh, The Dana Gould Hour. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Yep, and uh, speaking of comedians with podcasts, uh, Dana Garvey, not Garvey, Dana Carvey started a podcast uh, recently called Fantastic. Um, I was about to say, is it called Shima Sha Sha Can It Finish? No, but he does have a good bit. I think he's trying to do a new character, and he says if he actually does it on stage in a fat suit, he'd probably make a lot of money. Where it'd be called like Rednecky, the redneck comedian, and and just like all, all the jokes would be awful, and then it'd be something like, uh, "What? what you, when I go to the beach, I take my shirts off, and you can see my man tits. Come get some." <laughs> so, what differentiates it from Larry the Cable Guy? Self-awareness? Uh, uh, almost nothing. Just just the jokes are even worse. <laughs> kind of the self-awareness, but I mean, Knowingly, it's it's yeah. pretty much that that same shtick. Right. So uh, there you go. But I mean, like the jokes are just like it, some of this stuff. Like wasn't even jokes that he was trying out. It was like uh, you ever you go on a big drive and you get a big gulp and you drink all that thing till you get home. Come get some. <laughs> like it's just, <laughs> that's just, just that's what he just punctuates every joke with. Come get some. Yep. Yeah. And most of the time it doesn't make sense. That's too perfect. Yeah. And I'm worried if he doesn't do this, some hack is going to do it and is going to clean up. But I think, and I think also it. enough time has passed since like blue collar comedy was like everywhere you looked. I mean, those comedians oh, yeah. still do quite well, of course. And, and Jeff, you know, some of them had a sitcom and all those things. Jeff Foxworthy, all that stuff. But um, there you go. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, next week on Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, we're going to look at Psycho 2. It, you know, the only. Well, no, this isn't entirely true, but um, one of the rare sequels to a Hitchcock film. Very strange that this was made, and it's even stranger that they, they continue to make them. I love that they exist, though. And we'll, well, we'll talk it, about it that made, more. Psycho 2 made a lot of money, but yeah, yeah also yeah. The, the thrashers at that, or not thrashers, the slashers at that point <laughs> had been quite the well, thing. Well, they oh, didn't, yeah. like, the only reason they were able to make it was because Hitchcock was dead. They didn't even wait for his corpse to cool before they started <laughs> on that movie. <laughs> He wasn't even in the fruit cellar yet. Right. <laughs> wasn't even oh, making the ice great... cubes red in the uh, cooler. Yeah. Wait, that's Psycho 3. Um, that would be a great a great Psycho parody where there's a person who digs up Hitchcock's corpse and pretends to be <laughs> Hitchcock when he yes. murders people. <laughs> Dude, mean? yeah. I seem to have cut your head off. <laughs> right, so... Uh, oh, I, I need to, before I end this, I need to tell the uh, universal uh, cafeteria story about Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. So both Mel Brooks and uh, John Landis, and I'm sure others have variations of the story, but it's basically the same thing. It was pretty, you know, if, especially if you're um, an up-and-coming filmmaker or someone that was, it wasn't that hard to get lunch with uh, Alfred Hitchcock if you buttered him up, so to speak, and, and you would go and have lunch and uh hitchcock's lunch was the same every day he would go and uh have the uh the biggest shrimp cocktail you ever saw with these six gigantic shrimp with the truly the jumbo shrimp the sauce yeah, yeah. the most jumbo juiciest uh shrimp i'm getting hungry just thinking about it right it sure and, wasn't lobsters no no it was shrimp and then and then he would have this uh you know big um big old salad with all the rant with all the you know goopy dressing and everything biggest salad you've seen in your life followed by a, a steak the size of his head with some uh, potatoes on there and then butter on the steak and 
and a baked potato with all the trimmings, everything. And then uh, it would come out a, a plate of ice cream with chocolate sauce and the uh, biggest thing of ice cream you've ever seen. And then after all that, Hitchcock would look at the waiter and just say, again. And he would have all those, those uh, the five-course meal just all over again. He'd have that. And I guess, you know, if, if money was, was no object, you could eat whatever you wanted. That was the thing he liked. Why not? Why not? He earned it. There, there was a similar story involving Orson Welles. I, I forget who, who told this story, although I, I think it's also one of those stories that several people have had a similar experience where, like, he he invited this other director or screenwriter to have dinner with him at his favorite, like, like French or Italian restaurant. And he's having this huge dinner. They've gone through, like, three bottles of wine. And he's like, oh, and there's a cake. I have my favorite cake. You simply must share some of it with me. And the the person comes out. He is so, Orson Welles is so well-liked at this restaurant. The cake he gets, it is just a supermarket sheet cake birthday cake that they send <laughs> someone out to get <laughs> if Orson amazing. is having dinner at this restaurant. That is amazing. Oh, I love that's... it. Jeez, how about that? I mean, there's a there's a John Travolta story that, you know, sounds like bullshit to me where you know, this was after Pulp Fiction. He was getting all the big movies and uh, every lunch, uh, every, you know, the, the big meal on set, uh, he would finish it with a, a little with an individual bunt cake and he would change into different pants. After his lunch, because he would eat so much food, he would oh, have something with a bit more of a forgiving waistline. I, I think that sounds kind of ridiculous to me, but I'd like to believe that's true knows though right i mean yeah well that that's the thing i mean celebrities they eat like us what that's crazy <laughs> so but yeah there was um another story where it was like the this like honorary dinner for um for alfred hitchcock it was like this big honorary thing and it's like this is in the, like the late 70s and like the director's era and everything and like mm. the, there's like people um like i think richard dreyfus is part of it where they would go into the bathrooms and there was so much cocaine being snorted. Like you couldn't oh, even sure. like, hear yourself talk and like poor Alfred Hitchcock and like everyone's just like cranked up on blow. And, um, and yeah, it was just kind of like this weird passing of the era, you know, and like, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, you know, larger than life for the most influential guy in the room and everyone's just fucking, you know, tweaked and freaking, you know, crushing shoving lines of coke up their fucking noses like maniacs and there was also that time orson wells was eating a big plate of frozen peas and he was heard to remark that they were full of country goodness and oh, green God. penis <laughs> i love the critic okay so you can uh more information on the show go to greenlitpodcast.com uh you can get episodes at sequelcast2.com follow me on twitter at m-a-t-w-b-t i have the book on how to podcast that's uh coming out at some nice. point i'm I'm guessing maybe february or march it's i called it a book it's probably more like 50 pages or something but i mean the length of a book these days with kindle can be whatever you want it's, so it's a think, circular yeah it's a circular you know it's a combination kind of a history of the sequel cast uh, in some ways and also kind of you know general how-to tips so it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that's received but look forward to that uh thrasher uh, so you can follow me uh, on Twitter at uh, Internet Mayor. Uh, also, uh, I recently did uh, all of the cartography for the revised edition of In the Footsteps of Hercules, which is a Greek mythology-themed uh, fantasy role-playing game adventure that is available from Skirmisher Publishing. Uh, yeah. You 
uh, you can find it on uh, drivethroughrpg.com. Uh, just you know, look for uh, look for in the footsteps of Hercules. Uh, the revised edition should be the only one that's available. Uh, and or you can also buy it uh, direct from Skirmisher. Let me let me confirm their website because I feel like it changed. Ah, uh, here we go. Yeah, so if you go to skirmisher.com. It is also available in their in their personal uh, PDF store. Interesting. I see. Okay, so um, there you go. And uh, Alex, uh, you can find me on the Twitter at Crab Nebula nineteen fourteen. Uh, right for Battleship Pretension and Film Inquiry, check it out. And also uh, stop by the YouTube channel, The Trailer Project. And I mentioned this before, and this is the Psycho episode, so we're going to have some listeners, people. And I've offered this again. I'm going to offer it again. If you leave us a good review on iTunes and reference a film, I'll do a trailer commentary as your request. Uh, drop by iTunes to leave a review. Trailer Project cover a movie that you drop, and it will do a trailer commentary for it. So check it out. And, yeah, all that good stuff. Very good. I didn't realize Anthony Perkins was only 60 when he died. He, yeah, um, yeah, he died young. HIV-related complications, um, with the ultimately pneumonia, I think, with the weakened immune system got him. But. Yeah, he was one of the first, the uh, early outed dudes who, who was, you know, publicly uh, died of HIV-related causes, which is really sad and shitty. Yeah, the last thing he did, uh, I had no idea about this, was a, a TV movie with Rosanna Arquette called In the Deep Woods. Yeah, interesting. Uh, like, like I was saying, interesting career. Um, also, a great Anthony Perkins film, Crimes of Passion. Ken Russell's Crime of Passion. So mm. awesome. Go see that. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's one he did. I, I reviewed kind of a double feature of, of stuff he was in uh, quite a long time ago for Battleship Retention. But it's it's this sort of um, kind of sexy Italian uh, remake of Jekyll and Hyde called Edge of Sanity. Yes, I've, I've looked at that VHS tape a gajillion times at the store, and I always wanted to pick it up. Is it good? Um, it's. I, I like how, I like the eroticism of it. I don't think it's that yeah. good, but like it, it really kind of pushes the the edge there as far as content it has a lot of surrealism in the photography. I mean, I think if you like Anthony Perkins to see him do Jekyll and Hyde, like why not? Like it's yeah, there you go. It, it's um. He's really into the part for like a movie that perhaps doesn't deserve it. Yeah, right. The performance is better than the movie. I mean, I'll tell you this: like the opening scene is like Jekyll as a young boy watching his father like fucking a woman for five minutes naked in a barn. Weird. And it just goes from there. Like it's strange. Has, yes, has nudity, um, child abuse. It has Anthony Perkins uh, pumping a staff like it's a penis. It's what so. The hell? If you want to watch those things, watch uh, Edge of Sanity. Oh, fun for the whole family. Uh, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Um, why not just call it Jekyll and Hyde? Edge of Sanity is just yeah, such an awful, right. awful title. Um, but yeah, there you go. Speaking of uh, awful titles, Psycho 2, we're going to cover next week. Um, all right. Uh, so for Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. And this is Alex. Same. You don't have the guts, Norman. You don't have the guts. Ironically, she didn't have the guts because she had been taxidermy. That's mostly sawdust in there. And preserved with the best chemicals out there money can buy. We all go a little mad sometimes. Happy Mother's Day. Here's some formaldehyde. (laughs) 